Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you to Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. And welcome to Half Points, the bonus content of the Irish Passport podcast we make specially to thank our Patreon supporters. In this episode, we're looking at the rise of the right and speaking to political scientist Cass Mudda about what Ireland can learn from the experience of other countries. What you've just heard is the sound of protesters who ambushed Foreign Minister Antonista or Deputy Prime Minister Simon Coveney as he left a Fine Gael election event in Cork, at which he and the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar had addressed party members. The protesters were shouting traitors and baby killers as they confronted Coveney and the Fine Gael supporters who were standing around. At one point, one also shouted something like, Irish people first. I quickly started filming on my phone as the shouting began, and then I followed the protesters out as they left to ask who they were. Sorry, can I can I ask you what group you're with? We're just uh, Ash, uh, Irish nationalists. Irish nationalists? Yeah, we we um we're sick of Fianna, uh, we're sick of the whole lot of them. Okay. They're trying 2040. Is not about 2040? No. They want to bring a uh, half million uh, migrants into this country. They don't know who they are and what, what what criminal records they have. They don't care. Do, does your group have a name? We don't or? have a group, we're just Irish yeah, people. Irish, Irish people. The views of these anonymous Irish nationalists were anti-abortion, anti-immigration and rather devout. One man shouted at the Fine Gael members to come back to God and said it wasn't too late for them to be saved from sin. I was puzzled when the man I spoke to outside brought up 2040. Project Ireland 2040 is the name of a major infrastructure and investment programme which was announced by the government in 2018. It states that more homes and jobs will be needed because by 2040 there'll be an extra 1 million people living in Ireland due to population growth. As it turns out, after Project 2040 was launched, it became the subject of online conspiracy theories. A post on the Islamophobic Gates of Vienna blog claimed that Project Ireland 2040 was a plan to replace the existing population of Ireland with Muslim and African immigrants. This idea was then republished by Infowars, the conspiracy theory website run by the American pundit Alex Jones. And now it appears to have made its way back to the streets of Ballincollig, County Cork. It's a form of replacement theory, the idea that there's a deliberate plan by elites to replace existing populations with immigrants, and which is commonly held by white nationalist movements across the world. It frequently comes hand-in-hand with anti-abortion stances and pro-natalist policies, which are aimed to get non-immigrant women to have more children. There are signs that Ireland's historic referendum of 2018, in which a two-thirds majority voted in favour of legalising abortion, is having an influence on Irish right-wing politics. Yesterday, campaigners for a rural TD, who opposed legalisation, told me that opposition to abortion was coming up frequently on doorsteps, as reasons why voters said they would support him. And I witnessed it myself, when canvassers knocked on one door that was opened by a young woman who thanked them warmly and said theirs was a pro-life household and that the TD had their vote. It was also hard not to notice the many posters around Cork and Kerry for AIM2, which is a socially conservative party that was set up by the former Sinn Féin TD, Patter Tobin, after he rebelled over the party's backing of repeal. And I also noticed when I was listening to Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney speak before the protesters arrived, they hardly mentioned the abortion referendum at all when discussing their record in government, even though it was easily the most historic change that took place under their leadership. Many political scientists have noted 
that Ireland largely skipped the trend seen in much of Europe of a rise in anti-immigration, radical right-wing politics. But in the last 18 months, a series of elections have been the testing ground for this style of politics in Ireland, particularly the European elections of May 2019, which saw a pretty well-funded attempt to establish an anti-immigration, anti-European Union presence in Irish politics. These efforts failed to make much of an electoral dent or show up much in opinion polls. But in this election, efforts are underway again. Several independent politicians are running on such policies. A couple of members of mainstream parties have tried out using a bit of anti-immigration rhetoric. And two anti-immigration, anti-EU, anti-abortion and pro-natalist parties have agreed an electoral pact together not to run in the same constituencies, to avoid splitting their vote. These are the far-right National Party and the Irish Freedom Party, which is headed by the former spokesman for the Brexit Party's group in the European Parliament, the Europe of Freedom and Direct Democracy. Both have been active in campaigns against asylum-seeker accommodation and have drawn anti-direct provision activists into their ranks as candidates. According to reporting by Aaron Rogan of the Business Post newspaper, Facebook pages that were dedicated to opposing direct provision centres now publish campaign material backing these parties' election campaigns. I thought now would be a good time to speak to an expert in radical and far-right movements around the world to help us gain some perspective on these developments and see if there's anything that can be learned from countries that have seen trends like this before. I called up political scientist Cass Muda to ask him to put Ireland's situation in a global context and explore what the best way is to respond to political movements that test the boundaries of liberal democracy. As you'll hear, Muda takes quite a dim view of the role of the media in many cases. Provoked by our discussion, I delved into the academic literature a bit. It's a complex picture, but suffice to say, there is evidence that suggests the media can play a significant role in shaping political beliefs. Our discussion touched on Dutch right-wing parties, including the late Pim Fortuyn, the Freedom Party of Geert Filders, and today's Forum for Democracy, which is led by Thierry Baudet. If you enjoy our discussion, do share a link to this episode on social media and tag us at Passport Irish, and we'll put you in a draw to win a copy of Muda's new book, The Far Right Today. Let's hear from Professor Muda. I'm Kas Muda. I'm originally from the Netherlands, but currently I'm a professor at the University of Georgia in the United States, and I'm a political scientist. So we're going to talk a little bit about the far right and your research on it. There's a perception that there has been a rise in the far right in recent years. Is that correct globally? Yes, that is correct. Um, in the literature, we distinguish between traditionally three waves of post-war far right, of which there was a short wave from 45 to 55, which was called neo-fascism, which were really that was just immediately rem- after immediately after the Second World War. Yes, which were just remnants of the fascist period, <clears throat> looking backward, taking care of people that had served either in the armies of Nazi Germany and, and Allied forces or in the administration and the party. Um, then we had for a short period, um, roughly 55 to 80, kind of a diverse wave of right-wing populist um, groups, which mostly were so-called f- uh, flash parties. They they came out of nowhere, did really well for one or two elections, and then disappeared. And, and the best example of that are the Pujadist in France that were successful in 56 and 58, and then just completely vanished. And then the third wave, which was the most successful, started in 1980, 1980s, and these are the parties that, uh, to a certain extent, we still talk about, the uh, Vlaams Belang in, in Belgium, Front National, now Rassemblement National in France, um, Austrian Freedom Party. My argument in my new book, The Far Right Today, is that roughly in 2000, we started a fourth wave. Um, and the fourth wave, we have more parties, which are now global, and they are part of the mainstream of politics. So what distinguishes this new iteration of the far right that appears to be more active or have more substantial support today? 
Well, actually, the difference is not necessarily so much in, in the far right. Most of the parties um, and politicians that are successful today, pretty much from Donald Trump to Marine Le Pen, um, offer a similar combination of, um, of issues and, and of um, ideological features as uh, the parties did in the 1980s, 1990s, which is a combination of nativism, a xenophobic form of nationalism, um, authoritarianism and populism. Um, what is different is the way that the broader political context is responding to them. In the 1980s, 1990s, they were seen as outsiders, as challengers to the mainstream that were pretty much outside of bounds. No one wanted to uh, form coalitions with them and they didn't really adopt their policy positions or frames. In the first uh, two decades of the new century, that has changed. Many of these parties are now considered um, eligible for coalitions or are in coalition, and their positions and their frames are broadly used by mainstream parties as well as parts of the media. So the difference is not so much their beliefs, but rather how they are treated by the wider political context. Yes, exactly. So many on the right want to kind of argue that um, some parties like uh, Freedom Party in Austria um, or other Sweden Democrats, that they have moderated. And that's why they are now acceptable for uh, collaboration. But actually, the radical right hasn't moderated. If anything, the mainstream has radicalized. So what do you think has been the driver of that? Um, what's changed that's allowed this nativism and xenophobic nationalism is to become more mainstream? Um, I think that what plays a major role is 9-11, but more important, the way that we have responded to the attacks of 9-11 and the, the frame around it is that the Western world or the Judeo-Christian civilization was now threatened by kind of a global Islam. And the consequence of that was that issues like that are related to identity and immigration and security are now much more at the forefront of the political agenda and in many elections are more dominant than issues um, that were traditionally in, 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 in the spotlight, like socioeconomic issues, like unemployment and, and other issues. And when you talk about Islam, when you talk about immigration, when you talk about European integration, when you talk about security and you link that to immigration, then the radical right has a lot to say. Um, whereas if we would still talk primarily about education and the environment and other issues, then the radical right is not so prominent. So they don't have as many solutions or policies or identifying stands that would distinguish them on economic issues or policies like education, but the thing that distinguishes them is the approach to immigration. Yeah, immigration and identity, because in many ways, the, before the so-called refugee crisis of 2015, most of the debate in, the, in pretty much the early 21st century was not about immigration, technically, it was about integration, because immigration was pretty low. Uh, economic immigration is almost impossible. And many of the Muslims are second or third generation in countries like the Netherlands or Germany. And so the debate is really about identities, about who we are, who they are, and how we can accommodate them. So uh, th there was this theory about what trends could there have been in common between the Brexit result and the election of Donald Trump in the United States. And often the argument that was made, there was a, a common explanation of it, was that there had been this section of society that had been left behind by globalization that had been ignored and they were expressing their dissatisfaction. I understand that you don't think that that actually holds true. It's something else that's driving it. Well, let me first say that both Brexit and Trump are not the best examples of the rise of the far right um, or of populism. So you have to remember that Brexit, first and foremost, comes from within the Conservative Party and in the end was a coalition between mostly Tories and UKIP. Uh, similarly, in the US, <coughs> Trump was not a third party candidate. He was the leader of the mainstream right wing party. And as a consequence, the electorates of both Brexit and Trump 
are actually a combination of mainstream right and radical right electorates. And, and as, a, as a consequence, they're much older than the regular radical right electorate. They tend to also be much richer. This argument of the left behind, which is almost by definition white, incidentally, which are kind of white working class who who don't make pretty much money in at least in the U.S. case, the lowest paid groups, the poorest two groups voted uh, disproportionately for the Democrats, whereas the highest groups voted disproportionately for Republicans. Not to say that there are not left behinds, but I have two problems with this interpretation. First of all, there is another group that actually is left behind even more, which is largely non-white immigrants and their descendants, or, or here in the US, African Americans. And second of all, the left behinds the so-called the working white working class males um, in the north in England or in the so-called Rust Belt in the U.S. is only a small portion of the electorate of Donald Trump or of the people who vote at Leave. I can understand your argument that this all this this latest wave all stems from 9/11 uh, from the context of the Dutch political system because it makes sense. Um, if you look at what happened in the Netherlands with the immediate rise of Pim Fortuyn and I suppose the the depth to which the 9-11 attacks were felt in the Netherlands. But that isn't the case for every country. Do you think that each country had the same reaction to 9-11? No, absolutely not. And And if you want to understand the specific result for a specific radical right party, you should always first look at national consequences. And there are some exceptions. There are some radical right parties that did well for some specific different reasons. Think about Vox recently in Spain and the Catalan issue. Again, I don't think Brexit is an example of radical right success, even though immigration played a major role. And, and in this respect, it's also important that the final push in that campaign was about immigration, but it wasn't only the traditional anti-EU immigration, so against East Europeans. The poster that, that Nigel Farage stood in front of was very much had to do with the so-called refugee crisis of 2015, which is still about the issue of global Islam and of Muslims and terrorism. Can we categorize who the voters for the new iteration of the far right are? Can you describe them or make generalizations about them at all? Well, less and less. So in the 80s and 90s, when they were not that large, the younger, lower educated white, obviously, uh, males voted disproportionately for the radical right, even though the electorate of the radical right as such was much more diverse. Now it depends a lot. Like a party like Fidesz in Hungary, which gets about 50% of the vote, obviously has a very different electorate than a party like Forum for Democracy in the Netherlands that got about 2% of the vote in 2017. What we do know is in the most cases, it is predominantly male, roughly 60% versus 40% female, and it is less educated than the population as a whole. It's, of course, also predominantly white. Um, for the rest, age, for example, that depends on the country. Income also depends on the country. So it, uh, in, in certain countries, the, the radical right has become so large that they by and large are just people's parties. They just represent the whole people. Is this a European phenomenon? No, the far right is broader than that. It is predominantly with more established democracies and perhaps with countries that are a bit more related to what we call the Western world, like Israel, which always had a pretty significant and particularly relevant radical right. But Bolsonaro in Brazil can be seen as part of the far right uh, the BJP in India, and at the moment there are some more far-right politicians in other Latin American countries. So it's not by definition even a Western phenomenon, and it's certainly no longer just a European phenomenon. I'm interested to talk a little bit about the case of Ireland, which is somewhat different to many other European countries in that 
we remained somewhat naive and innocent of this phenomenon until about the last 12 months. There wasn't a, really an anti-immigrant representative in politics that you could name up until about a year ago. And suddenly this has changed with um, there's been a number of arson attacks on asylum seeker accommodation, things that intended for asylum seeker accommodation. And there's also a sort of crop of social media stars who make their name on attacking immigrants and criticizing immigration. Do you have any observations on what could be driving that? Well, one of the things that we that we should really know by now is that no country is immune to the far right. Like I, I come originally from the Netherlands and we felt very superior in the 1980s and 1990s about like being so tolerant that we wouldn't have a strong radical right. And and then of course we had and by and large our politics has been has been dominated by by far right issues and, and, and parties and politicians since 2001. Germany was meant to be immune and has now the biggest opposition parties, radical right, Spain, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing specifically Irish, like um, the Irish will feel that they're the blacks of Europe or that because they have uh, such a, a history of emigration that they're tolerant towards immigrants. All of that is not true. But the fact that you do or don't have a radical right party that is uh, successful says not says not that much about whether or not you have a breeding ground for it. Many countries in the 1990s had pretty high levels of xenophobia and of anti-establishment sentiments and of authoritarianism, but didn't have a radical right party, which has to do with the supply. Sometimes there is just not a, a good party with a solid foundation organization and some attractive leaders that offers a product. It also sometimes has to do with what other parties offer. Now, this has always been the argument for Ireland, an argument that um, Ian O'Malley already advanced in an article in 2008, which is called Why is there no radical right party in Ireland? And which um, my late supervisor, Peter Mayer, also argued, which is that Sinn Féin, to a certain extent, takes the role of the radical right in in terms of a kind of a nationalist protest vote without playing into the xenophobia of the radical right. And this is a similar role that Die Linke, the left, for a, for a long time played in the east of Germany. So the issue of identity and of, for, for those who for whom national identity is the most important issue and uh, patriotic feelings and so on, they already had a choice. Yes, in part. It also has to do with how nationalism is defined. And so for a variety of historical reasons, Irish nationalism is defined more inclusive and more from the perspective I, I would kind of see as the victim um, of like British imperialism. And within such in a sense, an inclusive type of nationalism, it is a bit more difficult to create nativism. At the same time, the US has also an inclusive form of nationalism. After all, allegedly, it is a country of immigrants and and, and it is a melting pot, et cetera, et cetera. And clearly, uh, in US history, we have seen more and more, uh, more than enough examples of successful nativism and xenophobia. You also just have to look at the, the demographics in Ireland. I just looked at immigration and just the demographics of the population. And I was stunned, literally stunned, by still how small the percentage of particularly non-white immigrants to Ireland are. Right? And it is much harder to argue that you're being swamped by global Islam when you have very few Muslims than when you have a few more. I suppose the most important question that I wanted to ask you today is whether there are lessons that can be learned from other countries that have seen these things happen before. Um, I'm struck by how similar some of the things that have happened are to incidents that happened, for example, maybe three years ago in the Netherlands. And there was this big spate of uh, local rows about asylum seeker centers and it got you know it all got very serious and quite mm -hmm. controversial for a time and now it's exactly the same thing in Ireland 
um, what can be learned from the experience of other countries that Ireland could take into account? I think um, one of the best things to learn is that you should see things in perspective. What has been quite normal is that a relatively small but very local, uh, very vocal and to a certain extent violent group has been portrayed in the media and partly as politics as kind of the the tip of the iceberg, as if they were actually the, the kind of the silent majority that had boiled over. And I think the Dutch are a very good example of that, where we've had very serious uh, violence and threats of violence towards both asylum seekers and politicians who supported asylum seekers. And these people were pretty much seen by part, particularly of the right-wing media and right-wing politics, as what we called concerned citizens. And rather than than they that they called out their racist arguments or their intolerance or their violence, it, they were rather portrayed as people who just were forced by a, a non-responsive politics into this desperate action. And as if they were the voice of the people, as if they spoke for the Dutch population and the, the whole Dutch population didn't want that. And empirically, this was often not that that clear. There's actually in most countries quite a lot of support for refugees rather than immigrants. And, and of course, it was highly problematic that the violence as well as the breaking of the law was never called out on. And it was kind of justified. I mean, people just say, well, of course, they shouldn't do that, but they're left no other, they, they're left no, no other way, right? Which is, of course, nonsensical because they can vote and actually they have several of their parties in parliament. So I think what is important is that we, we don't, and that, that the Irish do not necessarily see these loud voices, particularly on social media, as kind of the tip of the iceberg. Social media, and particularly Twitter, is not representative in any way, shape or form of national societies. I see. So the error that was made in the past, using the example of the Netherlands, was that the claim was taken at face value of the far right, that they represented the people, that this was what the Dutch felt, the Dutch ordinary mind. And that, that was taken at face value and accepted, not challenged and amplified by media um, as though this was the normal or um, the average point of view, when in fact that was not, not the case and it was in fact the expression of only a minority view. Yes, and then it's backed up by some polls which um, quite often show that a lot of people think negatively about immigration or think there are too many uh, immigrants or that, that they have a negative effect. But those polls have to be seen in a perspective as well. I mean, often those polls are taken after years of very dubious media reporting on immigrants, as well as after there has been some type of event that has been framed pretty negatively, be that a terrorist attack or some kind of a story about uh, an asylum seeker or um, an immigrant having raped a local girl or things like that. It's not to deny that there is a significant portion of the population that is not overly supportive of immigration that thinks that politicians are, are pretty much like can't be trusted and that think that we should be tougher on crime and whatever. But at the same time, there's in almost all countries only a minority of people who vote for the radical right. And so to see them as the people, like in Germany, pretty much the media for a while saw the AFD, the alternative for Germany, as the voice of the people who had pretty much denounced Merkel, uh, whereas Angela Merkel got almost three times as many votes as the AFD. I'm taking from the conversation that you have a pretty dim view of the role of the media in the events of recent years. Yes, um, that's true, even though uh, <laughs> I, I respect the work of uh, quite a lot of journalists. Um, I think the problem is not necessarily with uh, individual journalists. I think it's with, this, with the media system. And of course, some media are much more problematic than others. I mean, tabloids and, and uh, private television, for example, tend to 
to particularly push a narrative that is very similar to that of the radical right, having disproportionate focus on corruption, on scandals, and on immigration, and on crime, and linking all of these things together. I think there there's also a, a problem with the way that the far right is covered, which actually often is negative, but it is disproportionate. It's also inconsistent. You will have endless articles about how, how dangerous they are, and then newspapers will publish an op-ed from Marine Le Pen or someone, right? And at times they try to have these really smart interviews where they want to kind of show how racist or whatever the far right is. But actually the journalist is very poorly prepared and asks the types of questions that the radical right politician has answered like over and over again. And so in the end, it's, it's kind of a softball interview, which only helps the radical right. There's a, a sort of debate going on in Ireland at the moment, which is about how to treat these rather flamboyant new social media stars um, who are making their name off these anti-immigration views because they're doing quite eye-catching stunts, entering, for example, halal butchers and Uh, making rude statements, demanding sausages, that kind of thing. And there's an impulse among some people to denounce it or to express outrage or or also an expectation that perhaps it's the duty of journalists to report about what's going on and and show that this activity which didn't exist before has suddenly has suddenly arrived on the island. Is that the right approach? Because to me, it appears to be a dilemma where you don't want to just give these people free publicity, uh, but at the same time, you don't want to ignore if an important trend is going on. Well, first of all, the question is, is it an important important trend, right? And so it, if, if it actually is part of a larger campaign and it happens not just in a few neighborhoods by free people, but actually uh, in a larger scale, then yes, you have to report on it, but you also have to report on it as, as it being a tactic of an organization, you have to investigate how large that organization actually is, what their support is, and I also think what the consequences of the campaign are. And so quite often, for example, in this case, like when they go into a butcher store, they will describe like everything about the action and the group, but they will say very little about the effect that it has on the butcher which, I mean, it's actually intimidation, which can, particularly if the butcher is of a minority, then perhaps that butcher will feel personally attacked and not protected by anyone because his or her voice is not heard. And so what is important is that this is this is actually not just written down. I mean, increasingly, I feel that journalism has become just tweeting what loud people say and writing about what they do, which doesn't make us understand what is happening. It just tells us what is happening from a very narrow perspective. And so to me, the way the media should cover the radical right is not that much different from how they should cover everyone, namely well-prepared, within context, but there is a difference between those that play according to the rules, which by and large are liberal democracy, and those who don't. And I think media, which depends upon a liberal democratic system to function, should be more critical towards those that threaten that liberal democratic system than those who don't. I was quite interested to see the decision by the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, to go head-to-head in a one-on-one debate with Thierry Baudet, the leader of the radical right a radical right party in the Netherlands. Would you interpret that as having been a mistake by Ruta in elevating him to the official number one opposition? Well, there are two arguments here. Like, I mean, from Ruta's perspective, no, it was great. What it actually did was make the election about two people, which helped both of these people. So it helped Ruta. From a democratic perspective, it was bad because it artificially increased the presence of the radical right. But this type of cynical, uh, mutually beneficial relationship between certain politicians and the radical right is actually defining increasingly the media um, relationship to the radical right. And you see that most strikingly here in the US, where 
there is disproportionate attention for Trump, and there was already when he was completely irrelevant in the primaries. And there are endless attacks of Trump on the media and to a certain extent from the media on Trump. And that works for both. It works great for Trump, but it also works great for the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN, which all have seen like their viewership and readership increase. The whole problem, of course, is that while it's great for them, it's not particularly good for liberal democracy. Do you think there is an advantage in proportional representation systems over first-past-the-post kind of systems or systems like the UK and the US where it's a choice between essentially two parties rather than representing a kind of spectrum of views where a coalition is formed? Well, I think their long-term perspective is, is really useful. Like At the moment, we have this debate because we think that the rise of the far right is all about Brexit and Trump. But up until that moment, like the consensus in the literature was that plurality system or majoritarian systems were actually a much better billboard against the rise of the far right than proportional systems. But yeah, the problem of uh, a majoritarian system is that for a very long time, like because it's a it's a, it's an all or, or nothing system. So for a very long time, when the radical right starts, there's nothing, but at a certain point in time there is everything. In most of the proportional systems, like from the beginning, they, the radical right can be part of parliament. Um, and then they can grow, but they never really fully get in power. Although we see in the case of Hungary, which has a mixed system, but still, that that isn't the case. In the end, electoral systems, right, constraints to which successful parties like adapt and so I think the systems are not that important. I think there are all kinds of reasons why a proportional system is much better for a liberal democracy than a majoritarian system. But you shouldn't change your system to prevent the far right from being successful, because in the end, it's, it's just a detail in a much larger political struggle. So you think that perhaps it's almost, it's inevitable that there is some section of the electorate who will go for a far-right party if that option is there and if the conditions are there. It's they're just That is part of the spectrum of views that exist. Well, for a very long time, this was exactly the view. And so that was called the normal pathology thesis, where um, the argument was that about 5 to 10% of the population held views like the radical right, which were kind of unconnected to the views of the democratic mainstream. Now, the point is that the views of the radical right, rather than the extreme right, which is purely anti-democratic and racist and anti-Semitic, the radical right, which actually accepts popular sovereignty and majority rule, which accepts that the people elect their, their own leaders, and which is nativist and authoritarian and populist, that their views are actually related to the views of the mainstream. And rather than being a normal pathology, they're a pathological normalcy, which means that their views are a radicalization of mainstream views. Now take the idea of the nation state, right? that the Netherlands is the country of the Dutch. That is, by and large, when I grew up, that was an unspoken truth. And the idea of the nation state is still very, very classic. And most of my students still write, like instead of state, they write nation state, which really annoys me, incidentally. Um, <clears throat> nativism, by and large, is the nation state plus. What they say is, okay, so if the Netherlands is the country of the Dutch, then everyone who, and everything that isn't Dutch is a threat to us, right? And so, the radical right is actually very much connected to a significant portion of the population. When you look at the values of the population, then you see that there is a breeding ground in almost every country for the radical right. However, many people are not as radical in it. So yes, they think that there are too many immigrants, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they support a draconian immigration policy. So what radicalizes people then? What causes people to move from that kind of general view that maybe immigrants aren't great to it becoming an electoral priority for them and for them supporting draconian, as you say, measures against immigrants? The perception of crisis. Because when there is a crisis, first of all, there is the idea that there is a failure 
of the system. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in crisis. Second of all, it creates a sense of urgency. And so we have to now do something. And that opens the door to unorthodox solutions, including solutions that are more radical than you would normally support. But because it's a crisis and clearly the mainstream doesn't have the answers and there is an urgency, you're open to it. And that is what 9-11 was about. And that was what the so-called refugee crisis was about. And so the perception of crisis is crucial to moving mostly people that would normally vote for the mainstream right towards the radical right. Now, whether something is or is not a crisis like, is fairly subjective. Like 9-11 was in no way an, a, a fundamental attack to American democracy. The so-called refugee crisis, I, I call that so-called because in terms of the numbers, Europe could have taken them in if they would have been more prepared for it. It would even have been relatively easy. And there is the money to do it. However, it was it was created by mostly right-wing media and politicians as a threat to national identity and security by linking the asylum seekers, for example, to the terrorists um, in Paris and Brussels, even though empirically there was actually no link between them. So would you see the attempt to hijack all debates about the accommodation of asylum seekers in Ireland as a classic tactic to try and manufacture a sense of crisis and gain a greater demographic for far-right parties? Yes, and undoubtedly, like again, particularly given that the numbers are so small in Ireland, the, the, the key is to link the immigration, particularly of Muslims, to terrorism, to terror. Right? Because the argument that you're being flooded by a few thousand people is is not so convincing. But if you argue that, well, among these few thousand people are actually sleeper cells of ISIS, etc., etc., then it's easier to sell it as a threat to Irish identity, but particularly security. And And you see that across the world. I mean, of course, because of social media, many of the campaigns of the far right and of Islamophobes are really international. What is tweeted in the US is is like retweeted everywhere around the world and arguments that you see made in one country will become very relevant in other countries. I mean, the, the best example is the whole Soros conspiracy theory, which probably originated in the early 20th century in Hungary and is now by and large global, including in Israel. This is about the philanthropist and retired financier George Soros, who happens to be Jewish and is a huge scapegoat in Hungary and Hungarian politics, but increasingly internationally. Um, and do you think there is a connection with social media and the ability for freelancers to set up information networks and spread this sense of crisis if they're talented with making YouTube videos or whatever medium they decide to use. Yes, there is. Although I'm I'm very skeptical about how powerful and original the effect of social media is. I remain convinced that Donald Trump didn't win the elections because of Twitter, but because of CNN. Now you can argue that CNN picked up Trump because of his success on Twitter, but the point. I think is that many mainstream journalists live on Twitter and believe that Twitter is somehow representative of society. And so if something is big on Twitter, right, then they believe that it is by that is by definition also big in society and they will cover it even though we know like that Twitter is very easy to manipulate. We know that there are millions of accounts that are actually bots. We know that there are <clears throat> certain algorithms that like create effects and that the right is much better at making those than, than others. And so I think that social media does play a role, but if that effect wouldn't be amplified by mainstream media, it wouldn't be that big. Now, before all the journalists get angry at me again, um, let's be clear, 
we the people, the consumers of media, play a major role too. Like, if we don't read all these stories about the far right, most of the media won't write them. In the end, like most media are about money. They need to survive, which means that they need to write stories that are read, because if no one reads them, then they don't sell ads. And so if we don't read all the stories about Trump, people aren't, media are not writing all these stories about Trump. So the media is, is, is part of a larger structure in which we, the population, including people who are actually against the radical right, also play a dubious role. Can you explain that new kind of radical right that argues, make Islamophobic arguments from a kind of pro-feminist and pro-gay rights point of view? Yeah, the, the gender position as well as the position on LGBTQ population people is is very complex. It's very heterogeneous as well. There are some far right, particularly in more conservative countries that are still very traditional in gender roles and, and homophobic to the bone here in the US, for example, but think about Bolsonaro in Brazil as well. But in much of Northern Europe, and spreading further into Western Europe, including Belgium and France, for example, what you see is that gender equality and LGBTQ rights are no longer seen as some kind of left-wing or liberal rights, but as national culture. And, and so we saw that in the most pure form in the Netherlands with Pim Fortuyn who himself an openly and even by Dutch standards flamboyantly gay man by and large argued that he was a good example of the threat of Islam because as a gay man in the second biggest city in the Netherlands, Rotterdam, he could no longer walk openly hand in hand with his male partner. And so now there was a, there is a new part of this struggle against Islam, which is which is not just like they're a threat to us nationalists, no, they're actually a threat to us more progressive people who stand for gender equality and who stand for gay rights. And parties like Party for Freedom, but even the Alternative for Germany, have all campaigns about what the literature calls femo-nationalism and, and homo-nationalism, where women as well as LGBTQ uh, uh, people, are used as examples of victims, potential victims of an Islamization of Europe. And what this does is it, it kind of gives a, a liberal democratic veneer to pretty much radical right prejudice. Right? And so the argument is, no, I'm not a nationalist. I'm, actually, I'm just standing for liberal democratic values or in the Netherlands for Dutch values. As if there are no gay Muslims. As if there are no gay Muslims. And more importantly, as if they are not like homophobic, like non-Muslim Dutch men. And what we actually also see is that Radical right parties in the North only are really concerned about gender equality or gay rights when it relates to Islam. Whenever there are votes that in Parliament that actually want to strengthen gay rights or gender equality, but which is not connected to Islam, then they tend to vote very conservatively. And would this also be connected to opposition to anti-Semitism in new far-right parties? Absolutely. Um, many of these particularly more Islamophobic far-right parties and groups like the EDL in the English Defense League in, in, in England before are openly pro-Israel and pro-Jewish and with exactly the same argument. I mean, they're primarily pro-Jewish and pro-Israel in the context of Islam. Outside of that, they don't care too much, but they by and large say, well, if, if you're really concerned about Jews, uh, you should be against immigration because immigration means a lot of Muslims and they're anti-Semitic uh, and they will beat up Jews. I think this is maybe something for the future in Ireland. I don't think this uh, th the debate has developed this level of sophistication yet. But uh, <laughs> our, our far right that we have um, emerging now is very much traditional Catholic, so they would uh, go in for conspiracy theories about unicorns being part of a uh, gender <laughs> conspiracy to turn toddlers trans or 
uh, you know, this kind of thing. And it's, it's also to do with the backlash against our recent legalization of abortion and gay marriage. Um, Absolutely. But I don't see I don't see that as particularly threatening. I think that that is will always be an issue. And of course, in Ireland, there is a part of truly traditional Catholic which which won't be open to immigration, particularly not immigration from non-Catholics. But I think if radical right politics will become more mainstream, it will probably come through mainstream party, mostly the mainstream right, as well as from new movements that are much more in line with like English Defense League or Party for Freedom that will actually claim to defend gay rights and, and gender equality against a, an alleged oppressive, repressive global Islam. And I mean, this might seem like a stupid or obvious question, but why the fixation with Islam and Muslims? It's actually quite a good question. Um, when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, um, we talked about Turks and Moroccans and Surinamese in the Netherlands. After 9-11, the Surinamese were ignored because they were not Muslim, and the Turks and Moroccans became Muslims. They became one group rather than two different groups. Again, to me, that is all about 9-11. 9-11, of course, also comes 10 years after the end of the Cold War, at a time that we had no other enemies, and now there is a new global enemy. And because of individual terrorist attacks in different countries, by jihadists, this narrative like, has survived. And it's just everywhere. I mean, Islamophobia is so mainstreamed in Western discourse. It is not limited to the radical right. It is not even limited to, to the right. There, there are very strong Islamophobic arguments from feminists in Northern Europe. The Someone like Macron, who by and large defeated the radical right with an inclusive message, has doubted the role of Islam within France. And this is a kind of a mania that has become received wisdom. It is received wisdom that Islam is problematic within a liberal democratic society. And I, I don't know why something like that can survive so long, but it clearly does. Thanks so much to Professor Muda for speaking to us, and thanks for listening to this edition of Half Points, the bonus content of the Irish Passport podcast we make specially to thank our Patreon supporters. Remember, share a link to this episode and tag us at Passport Irish to be in with a chance of winning a copy of Cass Muda's new book, The Far Right Today. Gurvmina Mahagud, Augustlan for now. Thank you.